Good morning. My name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here at Summit. We just welcome you uh, this morning. And we are turning into uh, a different book of the Bible that we haven't done yet. Um, how, many, how many people are very familiar with Haggai? Okay, great. Not even one. All right. <laughs> we got some work to do. That's okay. That's very expected. That's, it, it's not just the cranky prophets, right? It's not, we, we think of the Old Testament minor prophets as cranky. Um, but there's a reason. And then there's some redemption and there's some grace to be found. And, and hopefully today as we talk, you'll see our need for Jesus and the wonderful gift that we have in him. Um, so Haggai is... A minor prophet, now they're, they're minor prophets not because they're minor in their, their message, but they're just usually shorter, typically they're shorter books of the Bible. Um, and I wanted to, we really wanted to do Haggai because we spent like a year in Genesis and seeing Jesus in Genesis. And then we spent uh, several weeks in, in Revelation. And, and then we did our Easter series of creation to new creation um, from Revelation 20, 21, 22 and Genesis 1, 2 and 3. And we talked about the temple of God and Haggai focuses on the temple of God from a different perspective. And so uh, we're, just kinda, we're, we're trying to just bring all of this together, and hopefully by the end of at least the, the first part today, you'll see how this comes together with the overall story. Um, Haggai has an important message for us, if this is the first time uh, you've, you've heard us talk uh, about the temple and, and you're new. And that's okay, but we've got to do a little bit of background work as usual. We don't just jump into Haggai and then kind of assume you know what's going on, right? I, I, can't, I can't do that. Um, if you want to do some background work, Ezra 1 through 6 is where this is all taking place. It kind of tells the story. So Ezra 1 through 6. Now, if you go 7 and beyond, you, you just jumped ahead. So don't do that yet. We'll, we'll do that later. But Ezra 1 through 6 is where Haggai kind of happens, all right? And this story happens at the end of the Old Testament. Okay, it's after the children of Israel come out of Egypt, after they, they've conquered the promised land, after the, the book of Judges, after kings, you know, with uh, Saul and David and Solomon. It's after that time. It's when they've gone into exile. And in fact, in the, if you remember, the, we talked about the book of Deuteronomy, uh, where Moses is warning the people before they go into the land, if you don't obey God, if you continue in rebellion and you rebel against God, then one day you will end up in ruin and destruction. And then he lists in Deuteronomy 28 all the covenant curses, right? Well, if you don't know how it goes, it doesn't go well for them, right? Um, we talk about this a lot. I want to tell the whole story of the Bible um, a lot. And so the children of Israel continue in disobedience generation after generation. And then God executes. He keeps his covenant um, and he executes justice in the form of Babylon uh, destroying the temple. Uh, and, and dismantling the people and tearing apart the wall that is torn down. Uh, the temple is destroyed in 587 B.C., and so the curse is being lived out. But there, there's still hope. And so Jeremiah would prophesy that after 70 years, maybe we can go back to the land. That's where we kind of find ourselves. So we've got a slide. Uh, maybe this will help you with kind of putting down some chronology. If it, okay, I didn't see it up there. Um, so there's like three waves of how this rebuilding takes place. And you heard Stephen so eloquently read all those difficult names in the Old Testament, right? Uh, some people say Zerubbabel, I say Zerubbabel, you know, tomato, tomato, whatever, I'm, I'm sure. Um, but to, Zerubbabel comes in the first wave, around 538, but the temple starts to be rebuilt in 520. All right, and then Ezra happens, and he comes, and he is part of rebuilding the people. 
So we've got rebuilding the temple, centerpiece. Next part, rebuilding the people. And then the third wave is Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah was actually one book originally in the Hebrew Bible, right? And so it's Ezra and Nehemiah. And Nehemiah comes back around 444, and he is rebuilding the wall to kind of bring the kingdom back, they think, the way that they thought it was going to be done. So that's kind of what's happening in in the context here. Haggai, uh, the book of Haggai takes place under... Zerubbabel here. And in this phase where we're rebuilding the temple. So Zerubbabel was actually in the line of David, King David. So there's a lot of royalty and expectation of him. And then we've got the priest Joshua. Uh, not to be confused with Joshua of the book of Joshua. This is a high priest uh, during right after the, the exile. And they've come back under this royal decree from the Persian king. They've, they've rebuilt the altar, and they've started to rebuild the temple like they, were, like they set out to. And then while they're doing that, they get all this local opposition. Um, there are officials that are bribed, and it makes you know, getting contracts and, and, and all the, the stuff. There's just all this litigation. They just stop with the temple, and they quit, and they don't rebuild it. And they're like, well, it's just not time yet. It's not time. And so the whole work is stalled. That takes place, they do nothing for like 16 years, and then we have the book of Haggai. So that, that's where we are in history. Are you, are you tracking with me just a little bit? Nod is, is yes in English. Yeah, okay, good. Yeah. All right, so if that's, if you do this, and I can go back and do all that again if you, if you want me to. Nobody. All right. Um, so that's 16. So there's 16 years of doing absolutely nothing, and then the Lord stirs up Haggai. So that's where we pick up because they're thinking, oh, it's not time to rebuild. And the Lord thinks differently. And so we have this book. So here are our three points for today. Number one, the rebuke. Oh, that's great news. Yeah, you'll love it. Number two, the repent, repentance. And number three, response or a respond to respond in obedience. So the Lord has raised up actually Haggai and Zechariah. They're written real close to their, their, their contemporaries. They're living at the same time. All right. And, and these prophets, their job is by the spirit of God to rekindle the vision in the hearts and minds of the people and their leaders. So it's not just the people, but it's the leaders too. That's why you keep reading Zerubbabel and this, and then you read just uh, Joshua and this and the people. And you hear that three times just in this one chapter. Like, well, that's a mouthful for a reason, because these guys need to be stirred as well. And so the people actually uh, were thinking they were doing pretty good because they're, they're out of the exile now, right? They're no longer in exile. Uh, they're free to return to their homeland and they're free to rebuild their lives. Go get a job, start a savings account, get you a house, get you an apartment, get you a renter, whatever you need. Get it going, get your yard, you know, start building stuff. All right, that's what they're doing. And so they feel like they're doing pretty good, but Haggai thinks differently. So let's jump in. Verse 2, if you've got your Bible, uh, we, we put it up. Oh, you're quick. All right, so thus says the Lord of hosts. These people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord, just like we were talking about. Verse 3, then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your, to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, talking about his, lies in ruins? This is a rebuke from the Lord through Haggai. And so there are two areas of disobedience that we see here. All right? Under this rebuke, there's two main areas. Number one is procrastination. 
Because we see verse 2, it says, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house. That's what the people are thinking. And God's just kind of calling them on it. So you think the time is not yet? It shows that they're hardly willing and zealous servants of God. And you think after a generation or two of being in exile, that, that they would be passionate and fervent about rebuilding that which was lost, the temple, that they kind of gave them identity as a people. It defined them. That's why God calls them in this verse. He says, these people in verse 2. He doesn't say my people. Right? He does in a lot of other places. He says, these people, not my people. It's kind of like when my child comes home from school and he's got, well, he or she might have a little note from the teacher that says, you you know, so-and-so has lacked self-control. I turn immediately to the mother and say, your child needs to speak with you, right? Your child, not our child. And so that's kind of what's, what's going on right here. Uh, the Lord's like, you've, you've got to really take stock and look at this. They aren't saying that, the, the people aren't saying that rebuilding the temple isn't important or even that they're wondering if they should. They know that they should. And they probably even want to. Just not yet. And so excuses in obeying God have become a new culture over the last 16 years. And the spirit of apathy, of not really caring too much, right, has crept into their thinking about the temple and about God's dwelling with them. And they could not wake themselves up. Now we're starting to touch on our culture and a spirit of apathy and a lack of passion and zeal for the things of God. Because we do the same things. When I figure out who I am, I'll get back into church. Or when I have some kids, I will get back into church. Or when my kids' schedule slows down, if they get out of diapers, if we could just, you know, and we come up with thing after thing after thing. But somehow we find a way to get the urgent things done, and we shoo the important. And somehow we're able to build our kingdom and disregard God's. And so... As we we kind of quoted Matt Chandler before in the past, half-hearted obedience in one generation leads to full rebellion in the next. When you kind of, eh, here, we model that to our children, and then they spill it over and take it to the next level, right? And so we have to think and come to the Lord in prayer. That's number one. So number one is procrastination. Oh, yeah, I know that's important, but not yet. It's kind of like cleaning the garage. I'll get to it, right? But it's, it's never pressing on us. Number two, the second thing that we see is that they're building their kingdom over God's kingdom. Their kingdom over God's kingdom. Because the temple isn't so much about the temple itself as it is about what it represents, especially during this time, right? That God was among his people, dwelling among his people again. This is why they started, this is why they came back to Jerusalem from Babylon. It was to rebuild the temple so that God would dwell with his people. And so Compare verse 3 and verse 9, if you can look in your Bibles, because this is where God centers his rebuke. I don't, we can't do both at the same time. But in verse 9, he says, You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? He says, Because my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. So you're busy taking care of your house, while the house of the Lord lies in ruins. What do we learn from that? That first and foremost, God is about his glory. That he loves his glory. He's not ashamed about that. The Bible tells us that he doesn't share it with another, that that he doesn't give it to another, 
right? And that we are to be a God-centered people. That we exist primarily to give him glory. Genesis 1 tells us that. That's our purpose. And it's where we flourish. It's where we thrive. It's not like a mean king that says, my glory is most important. You don't matter. Serve me. It's when we give God glory because of how we were created, we flourish as a people. Understanding that those two things go together, that our joy is found in giving God glory and not in seeking our own glory is a huge thing. It's a huge deal. And we read that in the confession, right? That the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But here in Haggai, God is being marginalized. He's being belittled. He's being forgotten. That the God of the angel armies is being relegated to the background of his people while they trick out their houses. And the message that they're sending by building their own houses, their own kingdoms and not the Lord's, is that they didn't mind. He could come if he wants. He can live among us if he wants to or not. We're good. I've got my house. And this language of verse 9 of paneled houses suggests that their houses were not in process. That they're not like, they've got three walls. If they could get, just get that last wall up, they'll be okay. i got to get a roof on here. That, that's not, it's suggesting that their houses are already done and they're putting barbecue pits in. They're putting in patios and, and hanging gardens, right? They're, they're beautifying them while God's house is lying in ruins. So as they build their individual kingdoms over God's, God speaks to them, even though they came with good intentions. So look at, look at the results. And here's what God tells us, and his word tells us that the results of building our kingdom over God's is. Verses 5 and 6. Here's what happens. Now, therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. He who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. And consider your ways is is repeated four times in this book, which is two chapters, (laughs) four times. And, and, And the word consider there means to check your heart. Actually, the word for Hebrew is part of that, right? Check your heart. Understand why you're doing what you do. Because there are two main results of living for our kingdom over God's. The first one is a fruitless prosperity. I don't know if you have seen the movie, The Greatest Showman, but I have a six-year-old. And she knows the soundtrack, and um, I, so I had to go see it. And um, there's this song on there called Never Enough. And she can sing the entire thing, and she, even in the movie, breaks out in this move and sings, Never enough, never enough, it'll never be enough. And, and it... It's kind of the P.T. Barnum, the, the main character. He, he kind of came up poor, and he wanted to prove himself to the New York elite that he mattered, that he was somebody. And so he spent his whole life using other people to make that happen until he realizes it kind of in the movie. And it was never enough. And so what happens is it doesn't matter what the Israelites would collect or aggregate or, or have. The Lord's saying, it's not going to be enough for you. You will not feel satisfied even if you get what you want. Because it's about this, it's about the heart. You can have everything you've dreamed of and somehow it's going to be hollow. Now that's a, a deep thought. God won't let me be happy. That's because he loves you and he won't let you be happy with stuff. He will only let you be happy with him. That's love. 
That's godly love. And so there's this fruitless prosperity is number one. And number two is unsatisfying work. It, it says, you know, you work and, and it's just not fulfilling. You don't, you don't understand. You earn wages just to put them in a bag with holes. It's like you're working for nothing, but you're working harder and the holes get bigger. And the tighter you grip, the more things fall through your fingers. Have you ever felt like that? It's a concept. It's a, it's a biblical principle. I had one similar to that. It wasn't because I was working for my own kingdom. I was in North Carolina. I felt called by the Lord to come and, and plant a church, right? And so I'm like, okay, well, you know, I'll just pray about that because that's my good answer. Hey, would you pray about it? I'll pray about it. So I prayed about it with my wife for about four months. And I was in this great job in North Carolina, 20 minutes from the closest mountain. I love to hike. I was three hours from the beach. I got to work with the, the, Carol, the, the Carolina Panthers on their team in a PT job. It was fantastic. I was in a gospel-centered church. They talked about Jesus a lot. I love that. Why would I want to go anywhere? Sure, I'll pray about it. And so I pray about it. And here's what happened. Nothing in my circumstances changed but this restlessness in my heart. I was just like, I am doing the same thing. I'm talking to the same people. I'm going to the same places. And it's, it's different. It's just not satisfying. What is going on? My heart was different. God was working in that. And so, in, in other words, he used that to say, follow me. Come after me. I'm what's going to satisfy you. See, you, you, you may not be hurting because you have stuff, and, and, and it, but it's not quite what you, you thought it would be. It's not the dream you thought you had when you were in, in high school or when you were like maybe 10 years old and you finally get to high school and you're like, it's not what I thought it was going to be. When you get the new job or you get married or you get a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a new house or a car and you don't consider God and it doesn't really deliver like you were hoping, look at that as God's grace. To not let you be satisfied with lesser things, lesser gods. That's the principle. When we build our kingdom and, and ignore gods, it will not satisfy. Here, so here's what, what's the scripture teaching us? Here's the principle. True meaning is rooted in God. You can say it that way. Or true satisfaction is rooted in God. And when you try to bypass God to be satisfied in this life, it will yield fruitless prosperity and unsatisfying work. That's what we see there. Number two. So we go from the rebuke for why they're building their own kingdoms, not God's, into repentance. So verses seven and eight. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. There it is again. Go up to the hills. He's telling them what to do. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I might take pleasure in it and that I might be glorified, says the Lord. This is a call to repentance. If you don't know what that word means, it, it, we, we talk about it a lot, right? It's a Bible word. It simply means turn away from sin back to God in such a way that your actions are different. It's a different way of thinking that results in a different way of action or living, right? It's not just something you say and, and you feel in your heart, but it, there's a response in how you live to it. That's true repentance. And so there's this call to recognize the apathy that's overtaken the people of Israel, to realize your helplessness to overcome it. They've allowed their lives to be so cluttered with non-essentials that there's less and less time for things that really matter. And we're no different. We have many more ways to distract ourselves today, to trick out our houses or to, to build our kingdoms. 
and we never really soak on what matters. And so Israel must own their lack of zeal for the Lord. This isn't a time to blame shift, to find excuses, right? To, to creatively justify why God's house lies in ruins for the past 16 years. I don't know. It's not my fault. I mean, you don't know. I mean, there's there a lot of people that were opposing us. I mean, they could come up with all of that. And God just says simply, just go get some wood. Get started. It's also not a time to do what I usually kind of reflex into when I realize, oh, I've been messing up or I've been treating someone wrong and it's pointed out to me. Uh, I usually overcorrect and I spend a lot of time groveling, feeling sorry, self-pity parties. Oh, I'm just terrible. I'm just awful. I don't, I don't know why God would even spend any time on me. I'm just, I just navel gaze to where I just paralyze myself. That's an overreaction too. God's not saying, oh, go do that. Go beat yourself up for about three days and then come back when you feel better and then we'll get to the business of building my kingdom. He says, build the house that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified. And so after this call to repentance, verses 10 and 11, there's a consequence that has a purpose. He says, drought, right? He sends a drought, Therefore, in verse 11, and I have called for a drought on the land, not to punish, but to jolt, not to pay back, but to stir, to waken you from your slumber. Do you realize the gift of drought? And we've all, if you've been a Christian walking with the Lord with any amount of time, you realize that that's a thing. And without it, there's no change because you don't really realize there's a problem because you got a blind spot and you don't see those. But droughts will waken you. It leads you to repentance. And now you can actually listen to God. And that's of immense value because you were asleep before. You can't wake yourself up. This is a gift of repentance. right? This is why the gospel is good news. It's, it's not a, hey... Wake yourself up, turn over a new leaf, try a little bit harder, grip a little bit tighter. If you would just go on mission a little bit more, if you would read your Bible two more two more days a week than you do now, it's not a, a, a time to just beat you up because you're not holy enough, even though that's true. That's not what's going on here. This is why Jesus came. God moved first. Did you, did you see that? He's not just sitting around waiting for everybody to get it right. I'm so glad for that. If God waited for me to get it right, (laughs) I'd be the children of Israel. And I am outside of him. That's why we're a good news New Testament people. There's actual change. that A.W. Tozer called it prevenient grace. It means it's a grace that goes before, one that acts first, that our hard hearts need to have us jolted and to wake up so that we can receive his grace. Because we're blind. The Israelites don't just sit around and realize all of a sudden, excuse me, I've been hanging there for about 12 minutes. It's probably bothering you, isn't it? The, the Israelites don't just kind of wake up and go, 16 years. I think that's long enough. We've been building our own houses. I've got a really good porch and a great barbecue pit. I think it's time to turn to the Lord. They're not going to do that. They need external input so that their hearts will be jolted, woken up and going, what have we been doing? 
We've been living against you, saying that we're for you. We're your people living our way, not your way. How could we have done that? And so God graciously, with a fierce grace, mind you, brings a drought. He makes the first move. He comes to his people in the way that they need him to, to save them again and again and again. And so true repentance is recognizing you're wrong. Jesus is right. Okay. And now I want to live differently by his grace. And so confession is simply agreeing with that. I'm wrong. And so I just say it. There it is. It's a realigning of your heart to the heart of God. And when your, your heart has been realigned, guess what happens automatically? You're realigned with the mission of God. It just happens. When your heart is realigned with God, your heart is realigned with the mission of God, and you want to build a temple. How does that correlate? How does that work with today, though? There is no temple that we... I mean, we're Christian, Jamie. That's true. Point three. That's why we got three points, right? So here's the third point. This is the response. This is kind of the gospel flip, if you will. Verses 12 through 14. So we see not only a change in their heart and their awareness, but their actions. Verse 12. I'm just going to read this. Then Zerubbabel, we see um, uh, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel, uh, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people. So we got leader, kind of the kingly leader. We've got the priestly leader. And then all the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I'm with you, declares the Lord. Listen, 14. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and the spirit of Joshua and the spirit of the remnant of the people. They did not stir up their own spirits. And they came, and as a result, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord. Don't you love that progression? They didn't finally figure it out. God came. God sent Haggai. God sent his word. And then he stirred up the spirit of the leaders and of the people. So this is not just a message to you and me as a church member. This is a message to our leadership. This is a message to me as an elder to listen to this. That we can all get off track and we all need alignment. And we see in verse 12 that they obeyed then, which the Hebrew word means they're to heed, to really listen or pay, pay close attention so as to respond, right? And so this affected Zerubbabel. This affected Joshua and, and the people. And, and in verse 12 and 14, we see as a kind of a parallel, parallel, parallel verse that the Lord stirred up the spirit. And the stir there means to agitate. Just to, you know, just to agitate. Wake up. Because these people have fallen asleep spiritually. Not just one or two of them, but them. The church, all of them. And the leaders. And they needed the Lord to jolt them so they could really listen. And they needed to be stirred. And God did both. Not just to jolt them, but to stir them and to give them a hunger for the things of God. So he, he did both of those things. 
And so this is what grace looks like in, in action, right? They couldn't do it for themselves. They needed God to initiate and to maintain. And then their job is to receive. And then they, then they respond in action. When they really listened, it says they feared the Lord. He responded with, I am with you. And to fear the Lord here is not so much to, to cringe and, and be afraid, but to have, have a profound sense of God's holiness and mystery that fills us with reverence and awe to the degree that we worship. Right? That, that we're filled with this profound sense of God's holiness and mystery. And I really long for that. For us to experience that regularly. Kind of like the, the Good Friday service. We're just sitting in here and just kind of this awe and we're just kind of enjoying God together. And when their spirits were stirred, it says in the last part of verse 14, that the response was they came and worked on the house of the Lord. And so their, their repentance and their responsiveness to the word led to their obedience. You see the order of that. It's not, hey, obey God so that he will be pleased with you. He will accept you. And so that's where we always talk about the difference between the gospel and religion. Religion says, when you obey, you will be accepted. When you do this, God will accept you and you get the hug. You get to come into the family. And the gospel says, you didn't deserve it. You obey because God loves you. Because of Jesus and his work on the cross and no other reason, period. Those are the two. So out, our obedience in the gospel flows from our acceptance and obedience in religion flows for acceptance from God. And you must see the difference, especially in the South, because we get them mixed up a lot. And the Bible doesn't. The obedience of God's people is part of how, is, a, is that, a, are you saying obedience isn't important? Not at all. <laughs> it's paramount. It's evidence that you have a new heart. It is evidence and fruit that you've actually been a new creation, not that you just got baptized, filled out a card, walked an aisle, and said some stuff. It's that there actually was a change, and you hate sin, love God, like to pray, want to read, hate it when you don't. Right? That, that's the new creation change. And so obedience of God's people is part of how God has chosen to work in the world. And we see that. Our, our choices do matter. And we choose, when we choose to build our own kingdoms, our satisfaction is never what we think it should be. But when we choose God's kingdoms, our satisfaction surprises us. And so God chooses to work through us. I don't know why he did that. I mean, I do know it's for his own glory. And he likes to, he shows his glory and, and he shows his strength through the weak things, right, of the world. Well, welcome, because, you know, you're looking at one, a, a real, real one. And in the spirit of Haggai, and because we've been in Revelation 21 and 22, and we've been talking about the new creation and the new earth, you know from Revelation 21 that there is no temple in the new creation. Right? There's no temple there. But they're working really hard to rebuild this one. So let's connect the dots and we'd be done. The temple according to the New Testament. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Then you yourselves, like living stones, you know this passage maybe, are being built up as a spiritual house. It's a temple. To be a holy priesthood, offer spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. Right? This is the New Testament parallel of the Old Testament. 
you're a living stone. You're being built into a house of God because we're going to dwell with him. You are the house. You are the temple. And every time somebody becomes a disciple, they're your next door brick. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you, that's a plural you, not a singular you. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you, plural, the church? Not just you, plural, the saved person, individual mission, I'm going to do my part. Your little part is part of a bigger whole, which is the temple of God, which is making disciples. Because every disciple is a brick, a living stone in the temple of God that's going to come in its fullness in Revelation 21 and 22 when that happens. Do you, do you see how Haggai is kind of saying, he's kind of pointing to the future here. And so according to these verses, you and I are being built into a temple to dwell with the Lord forever. And so we need to work on the temple that is to be, just like Haggai is calling the people of God to work on the physical temple in the book, right? Because the Lord is still building his temple. Our modern-day Haggai prophecy is to work on the temple, right? It's the Great Commission. I'm trying to be clear with that. It's to make disciples that will become living stones. And they're not just disciples that look like us. They're disciples that are down the street and our next-door neighbors and in our cubicles next to us at work and our friends at school and, 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 and like soccer moms and dads. It's whoever that we come in contact from every tribe, tongue, and nation is to be a stone in this building of God. So the question that follows is, Have we become like the Israelites of Haggai's day? Are we asleep? Are we kind of content with the temple being the way that it is? It's unfinished, and we're kind of working on our own houses, our own kingdoms. While God says in verse 7, Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I might take pleasure in it. Is it enough to come to church and attend a Bible study? And this is not a plea for guilt and, and shame. You know, I don't, I, don't, I don't do that stuff. And I ask the question in a certain way because you're supposed to go, no, right? No, it's not. I can tell by the way you asked that question, right? That's why I did it like that. The answer is no, please don't say yes. <laughs> please don't. It is, it's not enough. It's not. It's part of it. God doesn't use guilt and shame. He jolted them. And then he stirred their spirits. If all we are is a collection of people that come together on Sunday and fill chairs and maybe meet to feel good about ourselves once a week, and there is no desire for obedience, there is no hunger for God's glory, there is no need for his presence, then this church has failed. And I don't want to just speak in the negative. I don't think we are. And I, th- I think the biggest ox- obstacle for us, at least here, from the people that I know, is how? how? How do we not be like that? And further than not being like something, how do we be like something we want to be? And then there you get into wrestling and, and elders and, and prayer and, and, and like, ah, how do we do that in Athens? And how do we do that with the different people that we have here? Because we don't look like the kingdom yet, but we, we look a little bit like it. And, and then we struggle with that. I'm like, great, let's, let's struggle and, and, and pray. How do I do that, Jamie, with all these? I've got a bunch of kids. I've got to take, yeah, take care of them. They're part of the kingdom. 
But let's not just limit it to that. And let's, let's think about that. How do I do that with a job that requires 60 hours a week or I work a night shift and I'm worn out during the day? What if I'm retired? What if I'm just trying to retire? What if I, I, I need to finish high school first or college? I got to finish college and then I, and we ended up being the, the people that are working on our temples, you know, our, our houses, like the Israelites. I think it starts by realizing that you're called to work on the house of God now. It's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be everything you thought it would be probably, but it's going to be one step closer. I think the most important way is that obedience starts through praying for the Lord to stir our hearts. We don't even know what we don't see. I don't even know what I, I don't. No, I don't know where we're missing you. I I don't want to be a spectator. I don't want to fill a seat. I don't want to be a passive listener. I want to follow you with everything that I have. If we could at least start there, not as, you know, 30% of church attendance, but like just 75, you know, (laughs) some large percentage of a bunch of people that just want to know Jesus and follow him with everything we have. And we're like, and I know we're not there, and I'm not even there individually in my heart, but let's pray. Let's pray that God would do something that we that's bigger than we can even imagine. Can he do that? It's happened historically. That's actually how revivals start. You don't just call, let's have a revival three months from now, and we'll do Monday through Thursday, and we'll get this speaker in, and we'll have a revival. That's not a revival. That's hoping for a revival. It's a good thing. That's great. But I want, you know, it's like, will God move? Will you move in the south again? Will you rebuild the Bible belt? Will you make it not about religion, but about a heart that loves Jesus, loves his glory, wants to see people change, wants all tribes, tongues, and nations of everybody just working and loving one another together, becoming the building, the living stones that be that would exemplify what a temple looks like to the world around that we really would be priests to the world that we live in. Dude, dude, uh, you know what I'm saying? I mean, that, that, we, we want that, I think. And we just are okay with just a hint here and there and there. And I mean, Easter, like last week, should be regular, right? Or we're just celebrating. And then there's sometimes when you're mourning, and, and I get that. That's a rhythm of life. It's a, it's a Christian rhythm to mourn and to celebrate. That's what the cross and the tomb are about. <laughs> that, that's, we have a very functional worldview. And Jesus wasn't crucified so that we can meet our life goals. He loves his mission. And it doesn't exclude you. You're part of that. And you're most fully loved when you're on his mission. It's when you experience it. It's when you walk in it. When you learn to love people that are not lovable, that do not like you, that you're being most like Jesus in that moment and can only do it through his spirit, not through something you conjure up or or quoting a verse. You have to actually have heart change. To say, I hate this person and I know I shouldn't and I can't change unless you do something. That's Christianity. And so, oh, let's finish by praying today. If, you, if you've never been here before, we, we usually pray at, at the end. Um, so just stay where you are. Um, there are just two directives. You can just pray quietly where you are. Worship team will come up here. They're going to kind of play, uh, play while we're praying together. We also take the Lord's Supper every week, and I'll, I'll talk you through that in just a second.
But ask God right now to expose the kingdom you're building if it isn't his, and then just repent, just turn from that. Just go, go up the hill and get some wood and start on the temple. Don't grovel, don't be me. And then secondly, plead for God to stir our hearts as a people to treasure his presence, hunger for his glory, and desire obedience that displays that. I'm not looking for you just to be a good person or to be moral. That's great. That should be a duh. We're looking for a people of zeal for God. So let's just pray a couple minutes, and then I'll lead us in the Lord's table.